Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for our Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is combining user-centered design and Lean Startup to build better products. I'm Felicia Chinko, Production Manager at Lean Startup Company. We have our Lean Startup Week in San Francisco coming up on October 31st to November 6th. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speaker today is Laura Klein, the author of UX for Lean Startups, and a second book coming out next month called Build Better Products. Moderating today is Phil Dillard, lead of faculty and curriculum development for Lean Startup Company. A few housekeeping notes. We will be taking questions from the audience via the live chats. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is an hour-long program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Phil and Laura. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Pretty exciting to have this conversation with you. And good morning. Welcome, Laura. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I am fantastic, thanks. Super excited to, to talk with you today and to, to have a really exciting conversation for the attendees. Um, for you on the, on the cast today, we're looking forward to you feeling you know, entertained, amused, and, and empowered by what we have to, to talk about, but also to learn about how UX and user experience design and lean startup are actually compatible, how to make these things work together, how to work them into what you're doing with your companies, regardless of what stage that you are. So um, with that, I'm going to kind of jump into it. Uh, the focus of our talk today is that a lot of companies try to incorporate lean startup into their product development process, and a lot of them run into similar in issues. There's questions of good design, user research, and product management, and where all those things fit into the build, measure, learn loop, and the iterative process of lean startup. And then there's also the challenge of building something that people love while you're trying to ship code 50 times a day and respond to all the different pressures and, and, and questions that come along. So big question, how do you build something great today while planning for what to build tomorrow? Should you focus on customer acquisition or making your current users happy? How do you balance all those things? We're going to cover all those in three parts. In the first part, we're going to talk about the practice, the practice of Lean Startup. Then we'll talk a little bit about teams, and then we'll talk about and implication for roles of different sizes. So let me get started with the practice pieces. For expectation setting purposes, we know that there are people with different levels of experience in Lean Startup present today, but we're also pretty confident that you have a pretty basic level of understanding. So if you have some questions about some of these, some of these topics that we're talking about, be sure to put them into the questions box, and I'll make sure that we weave them into the conversation. But with starting with Laura, let's talk a little bit about user research and user-centered design, and how are those similar and different from traditional approaches? So it's interesting because I think user-centered design is a traditional approach. It's just that it's traditionally been used uh, in Waterfall. You know, there's there's we big design up front, you know, BDUF. Um, we, we've got an acronym. Um, and, you know, and I always say this, and I'm always afraid that I'm going to get kicked out of the conference for saying this, but Waterfall, it's not the worst thing in the world. It's, you know, a lot of great products were made in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the nice thing about it is that it does make room for uh, user research, you know, up front and thinking about the entire product and thinking about the vision and, and you know, designing this really amazing experience. And I think that um, for a lot of designers that I know, making that transition to more agile and more lean uh, techniques has been, has been challenging for some because I think sometimes the design and the user research gets left out as we move to Agile and Lean. Mm -hmm. 
But I think that you can't, you certainly can't do lean startup without user research. That's that whole, I mean, you know, Steve likes customer development. Like, what is that? User research, right? It's mm -hmm. customer research. It's going out and it's understanding people and their problems and their needs. Um, that, so that's built in. And then if we, and then when you think about it, designers have been, been building, you know, small versions of products and prototypes and testing and measuring and learning this whole time, right? We just mm -hmm. did it in sort of the, the prototyping phase. So I think that user-centered design is crucial for building any kind of good product. And I think that it fits very nicely into Lean Startup. We just, I think, have to focus on building smaller things more often as opposed to thinking about, you know, what's the biggest, most, bestest thing we can make? What's, right. the, what's the thing we can make now and learn from it and get it to people and solve someone's problems? You know, that's a conversation I had recently with a, a client who was, they're in the CPG space and it took them, they were talking about how it would take a really long time, what I thought mm -hmm. was a really long time to do some of this research. And I said, oh my God, we've got to be able to do that way faster. And it's, it ignited a bit of a firestorm because people talk about the, the experience and the practice base of these traditional approaches, which do work. But in this environment where we think that things are moving so quickly, mm -hmm. there are a whole lot, it seems like we need to move faster, we need to get smaller, and we need to break this paradigm from big waterfall to real smaller iterative steps. And, and how, do you, how, do you, how do you coach people past that point? Because it seems pretty challenging. It, it is. I think that you constantly have to be asking them, what are you trying to learn? And I will tell you something. I, the, the, when you're building a brand new product, and I know that you know, there are a lot of people out there who have products that have users and you know, have processes, and that's going to be a little bit different than you know, you're building this brand new product where you really don't know anything. You're searching for product market fit. Look, searching for product market fit can take a really long time. Mm -hmm. It can take years. I've seen it take, I mean, we hope it doesn't, but sometimes <laughs> it does. That's just true. And, you know, I understand in things like, you know, hardware, it takes a really long time. You know, there's these long cycles and there are all these things and we want to make sure that we do our user research. What I'm saying is not do crappy user research or just do little user research or just do the kind of user research that's the most, you know, the, the easiest. What I'm saying is, break down what you want to learn into smaller, more targeted things, and then go out, try to learn that, build something maybe that helps you learn that, um, you know, build a prototype, build a landing page, mm -hmm. build, a, build an experiment. Think about experiments as, you know, MVPs. Um, build something that helps you learn what you're trying to learn. There will still be the big, you know, ethnographic, like we need to just go out and we just need to learn about this entire space. Mm -hmm. That will still happen. But I think even in those big, large, we don't have any idea what's going on, we can still, we can still tighten that up some. We can still make more targeted research efforts. Um, and I actually think that this is good for user researchers because I think that they, it gets them more focused. It's less about, you know, somebody going, go tell me about my users, go learn everything. And then right. they're like, uh, okay, they're humans, and um, mostly. And, uh, yeah, like, we wanna be focused, we wanna have a focus for the research. And once we do that, I think we can start to just 
look for ways to learn more quickly. And you write, oh, that's, that's a great point, right? And you write about this in your, in your book, Build Better Products. I've had the, 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 for, the good fortune to have I, the advanced copy. I snuck you, you the one with all the typos, so forgive which, me. Which, which, is, which is fine, because I'm like, um, you know, I, I skip over typos anyway. So right. I feel like I'm on the inside track with that. But um, there are some practical tips. So the people on the, on the call, right, I'm sure they're thinking, okay, I get it that I've got that I can integrate it conceptually. I get I get it that I want to break it down. What are some practical tips that you would like use to get it started, right? With people, um, how do they, how do they get started, right? They go. I understand that there's agile out there. I understand that there's a design thinking. I want to work this into my build measure learn loop. Can you talk mm -hmm. someone through the basics of getting started? So it depends. Again, that is the most user experience design answer. I'm sorry. I'm gonna that. It's my training. Everything's going to start with, it depends. Um, but it does. It depends on what they're lacking um, in their current organization. Because what I've seen is, you know, a lot of places are doing Agile and they're doing it great. And, um, but they need to know how to integrate better user research and design into their org. And so if that's you, which is a lot of people, you need to find um, user researchers and designers and train them how to, like I said, design and research sort of smaller things while still managing to keep the vision and the larger purpose of you know the, the problem. And this is one of the things that I, I don't know who said it first. Um, a lot of people say it and I think it's brilliant and whoever said it first, please let me know and I will um, attribute it to you, but fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Mm -hmm. um, so we need people to really be, the, the, the long-term vision should be solving this problem for this particular person the short-term goal should be, you know, finding ways, experimenting with ways to do that and seeing if this works and seeing if this works and going out and doing some research to understand what's most likely to work. So that's that's one approach. Other people, um, you know, they're still working super big waterfall and they're still designing, you know, PRDs and MRDs up front and they have, you know, six month release cycles and to them, I, you know, the, the how to get started, you gotta find a way to get things in front of people faster than every six months, faster than every quarter. You can't ship code once a quarter and expect to learn anything from it mm -hmm. because you've got a quarter's worth of stuff in there. Who the hell knows what, <laughs> what changed right. any particular metric? Other people aren't measuring at all. I mean, and they don't know how to measure. And Honestly, if you're there, that's what you got to start with. You've got to start with the ability. And when I say measure, I mean somewhat quantitative. Like if you could do quantitative, you should be doing quantitative. If you can't, you should be. You should have a better way to do qualitative. So, if you don't have a way to say, this is the thing that I think we're gonna change. This is the user behavior that I think this thing I've made is going to change. Right. This is. I want people to behave in this particular way, and I have designed something to try to make them do that or try to encourage them to do that. Um, I want to know if I'm successful. The first step is figuring out, okay, well, how will I know if I'm successful? How will I know if I failed, mm -hmm. right? So, and it, it really depends. Some people have that down perfectly, but don't have the other stuff. Um, there are all sorts of other things that, that you kind of have to do, and what you start with depends on where you are in the org. Mm-hmm. Super. Okay. So 
makes a lot of sense. And actually, you solved, you answered one of the questions, one of the first questions that came up in the group because someone asked, like, how do you stay connected when product market fit or product mm -hmm. development takes longer than you thought it would, right? So yeah. it's like you want to break it down into smaller components so that you can learn a long time knowing because you know that things are going to take longer than you expect them to. But what do you? What about the energy question? That's an interesting piece, right? Are there practices around keeping the energy as you're learning? If you come out and you go, "This is awesome! Everybody's going to love it." I put it out there, and people are like, "Meh, right? Not so excited." That's depressing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? We've all so, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, right. So, how do you respond to the the super positive or the neutral or the super negative? Do you have any tips or or, or, or for people for like just how to work through that? Well, super negative. Um, have you tried drinking? <laughs> no. Um, sorry, that's that's flip. But it, it is. I, I want to say right off the bat, we have all thought something was going to be great and had it not be great. Um, designers may be more used to this than anybody because we, you know, if we're doing our jobs, we're designing things and then getting them in front of people and then observing their behavior and seeing mm -hmm. what happened. And so, but remember, that's how we get better. That's how we grow as people. And so always feel good about, remember, it's, it's not personal. Um, remember that you just needed to learn the next thing. And like I said, if you really, if you love your users and your customers and you love, and you really, really empathize with them and you want to solve their problems, I think this mm -hmm. is the key. You have to not say, I want to build a thing that does X, right? What you have to say is, I want to solve a problem for a human. Once we've done that, then there's no conflict. We keep iterating until we're yeah. solving that problem for that human. I mean, it can be disappointing when we put something out there that we thought would work. I think the most important thing when we do put something out there that we really thought would work is to go back and say, well, okay, I thought this. Why did I think this, right? Do a postmortem. What? What on earth made me think that would work? Mm -hmm. um, it's a really important question to ask. One thing that um, I know Eric talks about in um, the Leader's Guide and that I talk about in my new book, Better Products, which is not quite out yet, um, is this idea of, you know, it's very hard afterwards to go back and say, well, why the hell did we build that? Why, what were we thinking? Why did we, what was that feature about? Uh, because everybody else feel like, oh, that was, you know, that was Joe's idea. Joe, Joe has terrible ideas, right? Like, oh, Joe pushed for that, or oh, the CEO wanted it. You know, it's very easy to sort of distance ourselves from our, our, our culpability at shipping terrible things. Um, so write it down ahead of time. Write down, I have a thing in my book called the hypothesis tracker where, you know, you have to, you have to say ahead of time, this is what I believe. This is why I believe it. Right. This is the date on which I'm going to check to see if I was right. And a bunch of other factors that, you know, actually talk about the metrics that we're going to use to track it. And then when you've done that and when everybody on the team has done that, you can go back and you can say, well, this is what we thought. Where did we go wrong? What research didn't we do? What didn't we know? And how could we have known that better? That's great. Okay. So if I hear you right, I, I heard like three really good takeaway points. One was remove a bit of your ego from the process, right? Yeah. Right? Another for some of us than others. I was like, yeah, right? A little bit like, hey, it's not about me, it's about the customer. And the yeah. second one is like, have some empathy. And the first time I heard this empathy point, I was like, well, I don't, I, I didn't really get it, right? Because I was like, well, there's some, what is that empathy really about? But now what I'm hearing you saying is, if you care about the customer and you care about solving their problem and you're like, hey, this should solve your problem, they're like, that doesn't solve my problem at all. That's a good thing because you're getting then closer to them and you're really like, wow, 
okay, tell me more about your problem. It's not about me, it's about you, so I can fix this, right? Mm -hmm. And the third part is like, take good notes. Say, okay, here's my prediction of the future, as like Eric likes to talk about in the Leader's Guide. My prediction of the future, and know that I'm gonna be wrong, so then it's okay to be okay to be wrong or off by a certain amount, but I can figure out why I was off so much, so I have better empathy and more ability to actually take myself out of the equation. Is that, a, is that a good recap of those points? Yes, that's perfect. And I, I just really want to emphasize that um, if you do write down ahead of time, you, you can then go back and I always like to, I always think about the postmortem and says, um, how could I have avoided this previously? And how does that translate into avoiding it in the future? I don't, want to, I don't necessarily want to avoid that exact same problem. Uh -huh. I want to avoid that class of problems, right? Yeah. I don't just want to put out this fire. I want to prevent fires in the future. Sure. Um, so how do, you know, really what, what organization, and you, 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 know, you can do a five whys on this. You know, you can really say what organizational or, you know, sometimes personal thing that happened could have been prevented. Sure. But, you know that caused this this mistake. So I, that's that's a super point. I don't know that experience, how to live that experience as a designer because I'm not a designer, but I've seen it with developers. So I want to. And what's your feedback on like how do you tie that to the agile discussion, right? Mm -hmm. Because when I think about agile, people go, "We're really agile," and I'm like, "Yeah, but you could be really effective." just building the wrong thing or building a bad product. Mm -hmm. So but how do you, how so do you, fast. <laughs> right? Just build a bad product faster, right? In yeah. smaller cycles than big mm -hmm. waterfall cycles. So can you tie a little bit of that? Like how do you, how do you tie that to agile from the designer perspective? How does your integration of the design thinking and the learning fast mm -hmm. help you work better with, with agile practitioners? So we really have to think about the design portion and the user research portion as preventing building things that are wrong in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. It's true. Agile is wonderful. I love Agile. I love, God, I love continuous deployment. I love TDD. I love extreme programming. Like I, and I've actually worked as an engineer in an environment that did ship, ship code 15 times a day. It's fantastic. And it's actually, I, I think it's really good for the user in a lot of ways um, because we can, make mistakes and we can change them immediately and we can measure things anyway. So that, that's all fantastic. I love it. But it is, it's very much about getting the thing built, you know, well and in small increments and mm -hmm. done. The one thing that I hate about Agile and about, you know, many, many Kanban boards is that things get moved to the done column <laughs> when they're coded. Sometimes they get moved to the done column before they're even like, pushed out to production, which just blows my mind. I'm like, oh, oh, oh honey, you're not done. <laughs> you're a long way from done. This, this, this epic is not done until I know that it's changed the user behavior that we meant it to change. Great. So the, and the one of the things that I love to do is I really, I desperately want, you know, because I, I do a lot of product management and user experience design, and I really want the engineers to know the why. I want them to know, here's the, yes, here's the feature we're building. Yes, here's the task that you're working on this week. But it's so important that they know, and the reason that you're doing that is not because I said so, because who the hell cares what I say. It's not because it's a quarterly goal. It's because we believe, and hopefully we believe as a team, that by giving people this ability 
and or by encouraging people in this way that they will change their behaviors mm -hmm. in ways that are both good for them and good for us right that we will make our users happier and by making our users happier will make us more money <laughs> right. and that is the goal and that we are not done with the feature until the user's behavior has changed in the way that we want it to and that might mean that it isn't that that feature gets thrown out because it didn't do what we thought it would do now i like to use user-centered design to minimize the number of those features that we build and then have to throw out because they didn't do what we thought they would do is that all i mean i want that all to sort of flow together it's not it's not an agile does this and ux design does this it's that we're trying to change people's behaviors in ways that are good for us that's that's great and that's got to be empowering right because what i'm hearing you say is let's redefine what define let's redefine the word done let's yeah. redefine exactly what done is yeah. did i did i write the code well you're not really done did i implement the code and launch an introduction environment still not really done because <laughs> if it's if it's if it's out there and it's getting the desired effect then then it's done for now before mm -hmm. the next iteration. If it's out there and it's not getting the desired effect, then we as a team have missed the target, which we know that we're gonna do. So we need to go back and say, okay, we're gonna iterate this, right? Yeah. And which why, actually gives why a new depth. Yeah, how, why did, we why did we miss? how do we not miss next time? How do we get a yeah. little closer to the bullseye? Right, and, and, and how do we define like waste? It's not saying, we're not wasting time because we built something that, that, that failed. We're actually learning from that. And we're going to refine our processes and, and get those get those tighter. So the the engineering team, they may throw out less, but we may experiment more. So we're still throwing out a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? I, I do. You left out one word. <laughs> you, I, I love I love your definition. You left out one word. You said you know we're not wasting things. You know we're learning. We're not wasting things if we're learning. Um, if I we're was learning. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah. I, I I mean I'm teasing you, but it it's true. I do see a lot of companies that. They're like, well, that failed. Oh, okay. And they, you know, it's so funny. The the thing that I see people arguing about is this: says, you know, we shouldn't be, um, you know, we shouldn't be putting failure on pedestal. We shouldn't be normalizing failure. Failure is not okay. Well, failure is inevitable, and failure is useful, but only if we actually learn something from it. And I think that that is something that a lot of, um, let's say, large company and sometimes um, <clears throat> executives. And sometimes startup founders, um, let's say people in charge of things, sometimes that is a thing that they have a hard time doing because the first thing that we need to do is we need to admit that, well, no, we, we screwed up. We were wrong. That was a, we made a mistake and um, let's figure out how to correct it. So okay. how, do you, how do you help those, those big decision makers in large organizations understand that? It, it's it's got to be a real challenge. How, how, have you, how, have you, how have you conquered that task? Oh God, it's so painful. Um, uh, a few ways. First of all, um, I want to speak to all of the uh, engineers and user experience designers and researchers and product managers out there who are listening, who are in very large organizations, um, who are wondering that. And the answer is, I'm afraid, in some cases, you can't, and please don't tilt at this windmill. <laughs> Um, no, seriously. I mean, I, I don't want people to feel like, you know, if, if they're seven levels down from the top executive at the company that, you know, they have to go and like change the entire organization because 
that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you need to enlist the help of somebody that, you know, that executive will listen to. One of the things that I found for at least influencing other people who are making decisions that are not turning out well, you have to start tracking ahead of time. You have to start asking them when they ask you to do something, you must start asking the question in a very nice, polite, non-threatening non way, which believe me is the hardest thing I've ever had to learn. <laughs> you need to start asking them, what do we expect that to accomplish? What business goal do we think that's going to help? Is that the thing that we want to work on right now? Is that the thing that, is that the most important thing? Let me give you an example. Here, here's what I see in companies, and I think this will resonate with some folks. Um, manager comes to me and says, we got to build this feature. We got to throw a feed on it, right? And I, as a user experience designer or a product manager say, I have a lot of options, right? I can say, great, let's go do that and figure out the best possible way to do that. I don't think that's smart. Um, the, we need to ask, oh, what do you think that'll accomplish? What, what user behavior are we trying to change? And what is that going to do for the company? What do we think that's going to increase engagement? Do we think that's going to increase revenue somehow? Um, do we think that's going to convert more free trial users to paid users? What, what's happening? Does it improve retention? I don't know. Tell me. Once they tell me that, say, okay, that's fantastic. Um, why do we think that? What, what evidence do we have? What do we do? Oh, well, we did all this research and we found that this was fantastic. Um, what other things that we've probably talked about in the last week or in this meeting or that are in the backlog or that just exist in the world, what are some other ways that we could accomplish that same thing? And is there, are, are those better? Do we have any way of knowing if those are better? Right? So we're instead of, and then finally we have to say, okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. What's the smallest possible thing that we can do to make sure that we're on the right track? Mm -hmm. Right, because I think um, this is actually a there's a the Google Ventures put out a book called Sprints um, that works nicely I think with my book sort of they go together <laughs> um, but uh, it you know they do talk about sort of finding sort of the smallest thing and that you know thinking about things not from the feature level like the we got to go build this feature but thinking about it from the we have a business goal. And we know that our users are, you know, a particular way because we've, we've done a ton of research with them. What can we do to change that business or what we do to, to, to meet that business goal? What's the best, smallest thing that we can do to try to get it out there and see if we can move this number at all? Um, but anyway, I, you originally and I straight and far from the point because this is my this is my rant um, you asked about you know convincing executives I think you have to go through that process of what what are we trying to achieve here mm -hmm. and is this the right way to do it and how will we know if we're successful and then you need to write it down and then if they keep doing it to you in the future sometimes you need to go to them and say okay well this is what we thought before and we were wrong so how do we fix that going forward because you're doing the same thing Got it. And Got it. then possibly you need to look for a new job. Okay. <laughs> that would be a definite worst case scenario. Worst but case scenario. Or in some cases, best case scenario, because you can go to some place where the executives are this way. You don't have to fight it. But I, I like the key takeaways, right? Don't, don't try and change the organization all on your own. Get a little bit of air cover. Mm -hmm. um, listen to what people are asking you to do. 
ask some better questions, mm -hmm. document sort, sort of things, set really good expectations with them, and then teach them the process as you're kind of doing it, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just like, you don't have to say, hey, I'm teaching you the lead startup process, but you have to say, like, uh, uh, we have a, I know this great communication coach, Aaron Feinberg, and he says, you know, so I can make the best use of your time, let me be clear about X, Y, and Z. Let me be clear about your desired outcomes. Let me be clear about what you want to do because I want to make the best use of your time and come back right back to you with the perfect thing. So if you mm -hmm. set that in the context of, wow, I'm really I'm doing this to really help you and to make sure that I give you exactly what you want when you come mm -hmm. back, I would expect the person to be like, well, thank you. That's really awesome. How are you so smart? And he's like, I'm really <laughs> smart because I'm applying this. I read this book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And here's some things we can do. And by the oh, by the way, if we do this, here's some of the expectations that we want. So you're actually gradually trying to convert someone into being uh, into being an evangelist by just working the process, by walking yes. the walk yourself. And and having them learn to be, you know, hypothesis driven and having without talking about, you know, oh, it's a hypothesis. Oh, that sounds like science. Oh, I was terrible at science. Um, you know, but you're teaching them to be hypothesis driven. You're teaching them not to be feature and output driven, um, hopefully, or you're, I wouldn't even say teaching. You're, you're just, you're being that and you're modeling good behavior. Um, and I, I think you said a very, very important thing that I left out and um, I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing it because you mentioned, you know, figuring out what's important to them. Like mm -hmm. that's, as you know, uh, designers and product managers, we need to think about our users. And often our users are the people who use our product, but sometimes our users are the people who use our deliverables or the people who are our teammates. Or, you know, like I make deliverables all the time that I share with, you know, my engineers. And, you know, I write user stories and I make designs and I do all of these things, you know, and I make presentations to executives. And those are all also my users and my customers. And understanding what matters to them is so important because you're not going to change their opinion just by saying, well, Eric reset. I mean, you'll change my opinion that way, right? Like, don't get me wrong. Anything he says, 100%. But, <laughs> but that doesn't work on everybody, especially people like, is Eric Reese now? Um, that, it doesn't work. And so you need to understand what matters to them and what gets them promoted and what makes them look good and make them more of that. Super. Okay. Um, last question on this thread before we start talking about teams. Can you talk a little bit about the balance between developing a product, acquiring customers, and retaining customers? <laughs> pretty, pretty tricky because you have to allocate your vision as a designer or UX person amongst those. How, how do you, how do you, how do you tackle the the, the, the distribution of effort? It's super hard. Um, um, I think that a lot of times user, uh, any kind of product person, I think a lot of times product folks focus way too much on the building the product thing and they don't pay enough attention to, you know, acquiring customers. Um, and sometimes they don't pay enough attention to retaining customers. Although that depends, you know, at larger organizations, they'll focus so much on retaining customers that they're not thinking about onboarding new people or getting into new markets. And I think that that's because there's this horrible split between like there's product and then there's marketing. Um, but you know, getting new people is a really important part of what we do. Um, so here's what I will say. You have to focus on all of them, but you have to focus on them a little bit differently depending on the stage of the product development you're in. Um, so for example, brand new product, you know, 
you don't have product market fit. You don't even have a market. You don't have any people. You actually have to acquire. It's weird because you have to acquire some potential users in order to do some experiments and prototyping and talk to them and research and all this stuff, right? So you have to do a little bit of acquisition, but you don't because you don't need a million of them at that stage. Um, so once you've got that, you need to figure out, okay, great, what's the core of this product, right? And then you're really focusing on the product. You don't really need to work on retention yet because of course you don't have any people to retain. So I don't have to worry about six month retention at two weeks, right? I don't know that we'll ever get to six months. And the chances are that we won't if I'm focusing too much on six months. Um, Amy Jo Kim writes a lot about this and she talks about sort of the focusing on the core loop of the product that you need to, you need to really focus on what's that thing? What's the problem that we're solving? That's the getting to product market fit, right? Like what, what's the thing that we're solving and for whom are we solving it? And so you're, you do a little bit of acquisition just enough so that you can you know, work on the product. Um, when you feel that you reach product market fit, you might go back to you know, acquiring and start pouring some more people into the funnel and you might start optimizing your funnel and making sure that they're getting onboarded correctly. And then pretty quickly after that, when you do have people and they are using it, you need to start thinking about uh, what Amy Jo Kim calls mastery, which is this, how do they grow with the product? How does the product grow with them? What did they turn into? What is, what is it going to be like in six months? How do I keep them interested and engaged? And how do I keep the product useful to them? Um, and then after that, when you've got all three of those going at the same time, then it's just juggling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you do. I think that when you focus on the business goal first and you say, okay, well, here's my product lifecycle, you know, funnel, right? But, and here's where the holes are in it. Okay, well, pick the goal. Like, what are we working on? This, you know, what are we working on? Oh, okay, well, um, we've got great retention. Like, everybody who makes it to six months is just sticking around. So, you know, we've got 99% retention. I don't necessarily need to get that to 100% retention because we have, you know, we're only actually acquiring 5% of the people that, you know, mm -hmm. we bring to the site. So maybe work on that. <laughs> so at that point, you become sort of metrics driven for what Perfect. you want to work on now. Great. That, that, that's, you know, as you're talking about that, it, what, what struck me was the significance of running the business in a way where you're constantly learning where you're where you're always expecting to learn and iterate because if you're always expecting to do that then you go here's a new priority here's where i shift my attention i'm going to learn and i'm going to fix the most important thing i'm going to spend the right time on the right thing so if it's always a nature of this iterative cycle of learning then it's not a problem then it, juggling is not as hard it's not so hard right it's a well, challenge it's still hard but it's <laughs> But it's, it's, it's not, not like so you're not expecting it. It's not like yeah. you're like, oh, God, I got to fix this thing again. You expect yeah. something's going to shift. The market's going to change. Things are going to move fast. And we're going to adjust to it. So the, 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 the pressure, the, the, the frustration, you can't be like, oh, my God, I just wish things would stay the same. Because they're not going to stay the same. Yeah. You're just expecting them to change. And you're being comfortable with that. They're going to do that. Oh yeah, if you want everything to stay the same, you're in the wrong business. I don't know what the right <laughs> business is at this point, but that's, yeah, that's, I, I had somebody ask, well, when will this be done? And I, never, <laughs> it'll never be done. I mean, that's, it'll be done if we go out of business, which would suck, but um, you know, that's, things change. We keep improving things. Um, you know, sometimes we make changes that aren't great. And how do you best find out like what's next when you're in this learning process? Mm -hmm. And what's the balance of like, 
asking new customers, asking existing customers, learning from experiments. How, how, do you, how do you do that that balance? I think you do need to start at that point from the business goal. And um, in the book, I have this um, I have this sort of model, and uh, that that has the unbelievably terrible acronym of Gekvami. Um, because yeah. Yeah. I love that acronym. Get with me. Sure, you know, rolls off the tongue. But it's uh, it's goal, empathy, creation, validation, measurement, and iteration. Um, and now you don't have to buy the book. No, uh, but the, it does start with goal, and it starts with your business goal. Because, um, as I like to say, it is really important to understand your users' problems. Like, it is super, that's the empathy part, and it's a big part of the book, and it is really important to understand the problems. But your users have a lot of problems, because mm -hmm. they're humans. And humans have a, we have a huge number of problems. And any one product is not going to solve all of them for all of us. That ain't going to happen. So you have to figure out some way to prioritize, which is what you're talking about. What do we build next? And we prioritize based on the business goal that we care about at that particular moment in time, or hopefully longer than moment. We don't want to change every 15 seconds. Um, so you know, if you've got things like if you've implemented you know, OKRs at your company, um, you know, objectives and key results. Like, and if you have an objective, OK, great. Like We've now focused, we've said, this is the metric, this is the business goal that I care about. Let's understand what changes we can make to affect that goal. Not what changes can we make in general all the time for anybody. That's way too wide open. And then I think you can start to get very confused and, oh, but we could make that. Oh, but we could do, oh, we could do this. That's very hard. Um, mm -hmm. Being more focused and saying, we could do all of those things, but what are we trying to achieve? It, it gives you a little bit more of a goal. It's kind of like the difference between saying, like, I'm going to take a road trip and saying, I need to get to New York. Right? right. There are right. still a lot of options for getting to New York, and you can still screw it up. I have. Um, but that said, at least you have a goal. But if you're taking the road trip to enjoy the experimentation, enjoy the exploration, then enjoy the exploration. But if you want to get to New York the fastest way or the safest way or the or or with the least amount of highways, whichever you have a goal. That's, that's and if you're and if you're just doing it to enjoy the to enjoy the ride, maybe don't spend somebody else's money doing that. <laughs> sure, <laughs> they might have a goal. You might want to talk to them about it. <laughs> if their goal is to make money, and they're like, you can yeah. enjoy the ride on your on your own time. Yeah, that's called art or hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, and we need those too. But we should be clear 100%. about the yeah. difference, right? Mm -hmm. So let's shift a little bit and talk a little bit about team. Um, how do you figure out how to how do you figure out how to do this as a team? What's a good what's a good framework? How do you in, in, in incorporate things like experiments and MVPs and learning into teams where you know a lot of organizations are bringing teams together of, from disparate parts of the you know different disparate backgrounds and such, or or people are just figuring out how how to put together a team. How do you what's a framework for figuring out how to do that well? Um, I like to think about it as a heist team. Um, <laughs> I did I did a talk for uh, Mind the Product um, that's online, and it's called uh, Building Happy Teams. And it's all about, and the, the last chapter of my book is all about sort of building this heist team. Um, bear with me. I very much like heist movies. Um, <laughs> but this idea is that you have this team of experts. And you don't, many, many companies are, of course, in silos where you've got all of your designers and all of your researchers and all and they're all separate and you know sometimes we're in separate buildings um but you don't want to rob a bank with 17 safe crackers and nobody to drive the getaway car like mm -hmm. that, that's, you're going to get arrested so <laughs> what i think of is what is what are the specialties what are the roles that need to happen um 
on this team? Who do I need, you know, to be an expert in something? And people can be experts in multiple things, or they can be an expert in something and kind of good at something else. But like you have to, and you have to think about that. And it's going to vary again from team to team. Some companies are sometimes you're going to need an industrial designer. Sometimes you are going to need a data scientist. Sometimes you know you might or might not need a database person. Um, great. Figure that out, right? Maybe you need some, and here's the thing, don't leave out the business stuff and the legal stuff and the finance stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need somebody to help you figure out what the regulations are in you know, India because that's where your product's gonna be and you need, to help, you need somebody to help you navigate that. Mm -hmm. Great, make sure they're part of the team early and that you don't build something and then talk to somebody who knows a lot about India and have them go, well, that's great, except it's entirely illegal here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So make sure that you're incorporating the, the important, all the important roles early. Not all of them are going to be on the team 100% of the time. You don't, need to have, you don't need to pay your lawyer to sit with you 40 hours a week. Um, that's probably not a good use of their time or your mm -hmm. money. But you do need to make sure that, there are, that everybody who is involved and everybody who's a stakeholder is constantly updated and involved and helping to make the, the critical decisions. Super, that, that, uh, that's really helpful. I, as, you're, as you talked about the, um, the heist team, I thought about a number of different types of teams that are like literal that people have their experience, like maybe you know a, a football team that goes no huddle because everybody now looks at the sideline for the play or different teams, different types of teams where you could take that analogy and say, well, I need to have a this and this and a this. I don't know all of it, but I can also check with someone and say, "Hey, is this team good enough?" So I make sure that I've got the team, and then I really start to start to start to work with that. That's yeah, that's cool. The, the heist team metaphor. Since I did it last spring, the heist team metaphor was almost a Golden State Warriors metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it was that was touch and go for a while. Uh, <laughs> right. you, do, you really want you know you really want people working together, and it, you want it to be about what is the whole team goal. It's not about, you know, one person coming in and being the hero. It's not about, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's about everybody playing their part and mm -hmm. thinking about and respecting each other and not having a bunch sure. of infighting and all of these things about, you know, respect and trust. You have to have trust on the team and everybody has to know that everybody else is an expert at what they do and um, that we're all going to, work on it that we're all rowing in the same direction <laughs> mm -hmm. right right uh, that they um they understand that they need to change a little bit of what they do mm -hmm. so that they, they can work better as a team whether it's a small team or a broadly distributed team mm -hmm. stanley mccrystal kills this in the book around team of teams start talking about how the joint special operations community spec war community mm -hmm. how to adjust how they work to a, to respond to a to a new and ever-changing threat. So yeah. it, it, just, it just makes a whole lot of sense that you've got to respond to the environment that you're in and a certain type of team, it may not work and you've got to, you've got to, you've got to learn it yourself. Yeah, and, and you do have to have that trust and respect and I think that you build that over time and you build that by working with people um, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and that's why I think these balanced teams are so important. Um, as opposed to just, oh, we're going to ship in a you know, UX designer from somewhere else. And they're going to come in and they're just going to sprinkle some UX on it. Um, <laughs> you know, but they don't really know. They don't understand what the goals are. They're just like taking what you've told them and 
they're not really they're not contributing as much as they could in the same way that an engineer who doesn't really understand what done means isn't contributing as much as they could and you know what all of these folks all of these people that we're working with they are so smart and they are so useful and they are they have such good ideas and when we ignore them or when we say oh that's their, their ideas aren't important because they're just a, an engineer they're just a qa person they're just a whatever oh we just need to work around legal when we do that we're not taking advantage of how smart and how wonderful and how talented they all are yeah yeah that, that's super it's super important it reminds me of eric's story i don't know if you've eric tell the, tell the story about the uh, compliance troll the, the team, you know, the team. Tell it again. The, I love this story. I love the story, right? Because he's talking with this this group from General Electric, and they're doing something about something in in medical in the medical industry where there's a whole lot of regulations, and the team didn't want to have anybody from legal or compliance there. But the legal or compliance guy was like, Eric's like, no, he's got to be in the room. And he didn't contribute, didn't say anything, just kind of sat in the back, and they just thought of him as Dr. No. And they came up with all these ideas for MVPs, what they could do, but then people said, oh, but, you know, we can't do that because, you know, the FDA would never allow it. And the guy in the back's like, wait a minute, excuse me, um, can I tell you, do you think, actually, that the government wants to stop all innovation? And they're like, no. <laughs> do you think that they would create a law that's so restrictive that there's no space for us to try and experiment with something new? And they're like, Maybe because it's the government. <laughs> I don't and, know. You know yeah. the the big the big takeaway. The guy was like, "Well, if you knew about paragraph D of subsection twelve of this specific instruction, you would see that there are twelve specific callouts for how you can test the product if you're trying to do A, B, and C because you're not quite ready to go to market. And actually, these MVPs that you were going to take off the list, they're actually." Uh, you can, they're covered under underneath that, and you know everybody was in the room with like mouth open, jaw on the on the on the table, going, "Wow, I didn't I, I didn't know he could speak. I thought he could only say no. I thought you know legal and compliance was only here to obstruct me. But there's actually something they can do to help me work better as a team because the comprehensive knowledge of the body is better and and more powerful than just the than, than people think they are that is and it's going to surprise them so um, it leads me to another question like did you have you seen differences between any similarities or differences by teams of organizations of different sizes oh, yeah. uh, are there any trends or, or differences in the small team versus the mid-sized fast-growing company team versus a large organization team that people should be aware of and, and pay attention to yeah, so many, <laughs> so so many. Uh, it, it's interesting because uh, right now, you know, I work with I'm working with a client, and it's actually a very small product team, but in a much larger organization that you know has a way of working. And even that can be very different than it's a very small product team. You know, and I've done this before. You know, where it's like it's a very small product team, and we're just building stuff for customers, right? But when whenever you have a larger organization, there is coordination overhead even when you have this small team. So this is one of the reasons where when you're trying to be really innovative, a lot of times you know, people say like, yeah, we just, you need to get air cover and you need to know that like you really are operating separately and that you don't need to constantly go back and say, is this okay, is this okay, is this okay? Because sometimes it, it just won't be and you need to know that you're just covered and, and insulated from that. Um, but in general, I, 
yes, I, the, the trends that I'm seeing, like I said, in large companies, some large companies, um, many of them are breaking down their silos, which I think is good, but it, um, it does come along with some different problems because now all of a sudden, instead of having a user experience department and a product department and an engineering department, they have these little pods and now suddenly they have to figure out, oh, well, how do we manage all those pods and how do we make sure that the, the overall user experience of the product is still good and how do we make sure that we don't have, um, you know, three different teams at the company all building the same thing while mm -hmm. we're not building. So if you're trying to design that organization, there are a lot of subtleties that are, that are harder than just, oh, just make a bunch of little teams. Like, oh, now you have a new set of problems mm -hmm. <laughs> that you don't have when you're a startup and you have a little team and that's what you have. You have a little team and that's, that's it and you don't have to worry about anybody else doing anything. Um, you have to worry about literally everything else. <laughs> but, uh, so I, it, it's, it's very complicated doing this and doing organizational change. All that I will say is um, don't go alone. There are people who have done this. There are companies that have been through this. Um, find coaches, find trainers, find people who have been through this and who can look at what your organization looks like and help guide you through it. Um, you'll still make mistakes, but you won't make the same mistakes that, you know, everybody else made. You'll make new ones and then we all learn together and we'll be great. <laughs> Super. You know, it's funny. I, I haven't heard this term before, but I love it. I don't know if you want to trademark it, but that coordination <laughs> overhead, when you said that, it really stuck with mm -hmm. me, right? Because people know about technical debt. People mm -hmm. know about overhead, like the financial overhead of having W-2 employees versus 1099s. Mm -hmm. But the kind of coordination overhead that grows and changes as the organization grows as it changes, it's, it's a big thing, right? There's not much of it mm -hmm. when you're six, ten people in a room. I've experienced mm -hmm. this, right? Six people in a room in a startup, there's no coordination overhead. You hear everybody's conversations. 20 yeah. people in a startup, well, I'm sitting across the, the table from the guy who runs who runs the, the service business and I'm, you know, I was a CFO, the service business guy was there. We had these conversations or heard them over them when people came on. I was like, wait a minute, you get, there wasn't, and there was no need for this coordination. But when it got to 50 or a hundred or mm -hmm. 500 or 5,000 and you're, and, and there are thousands of people who are like, Hey, what are you guys doing in the innovation organization? And you need to coordinate with a bunch of different stakeholders and a bunch of different phases of the business in mature parts of the business and growth parts of the business. Wow. There's so much more complexity and coordination required. We yeah. can't be expected to know how to do it, but if we think about managing the coordination overhead and keeping track of it, like we keep track of technical debt, that could be really powerful. It could be. And you know, it's, it's funny. I, um, I often think of it like a computer program that at some point, uh, the product and the services and the offerings get too big to like load into one head, right? You can no longer, and I often think about this, like at what point does the project become too big for me to just load it into my head and make decisions in there? And all of a sudden now I've got to make decisions, like the hive has to make decisions and we all have to make good decisions on our own that still somehow roll up and turn into good decisions at the higher level. And um, that is, that's when you get into this. It, it, it's funny, you know, you mentioned like 50 people and 100 people. There's this like 50 to 200 range that I've seen with companies where they do go through what I call the teenage, the teenage phase of the startup where they have to start putting in like structure and they have to start putting in process. And you don't want too much because you're going to piss off everybody who, you know, was employed 25 and under. 
but you know, and you're going to stifle the innovation. You don't want to like put in, you don't want to put in big company process at 50, but you need some mm-hmm. process and you need a little bit more at a hundred and you know, and you need to build the scaffolding and the process a little bit ahead of where you are because otherwise you end up you know, these, these folks who, you know, like, Oh, we have 5,000 people and we all still sort of make all of our own decisions. And, and now everything is a mess. And now we have to go back and like, do this big thing where we put it all in together and that's super hard. It's possible, but it's super hard. Yeah, I understand that. That actually relates to one of the questions that that just came in where people said, how do you approach this collaboration when a lot of the team is remote or in, mm-hmm. in different locations? Um, I just recently heard a conversation from the CEO of Expensify mm-hmm. and he talked about how they solved that problem. He's like, we don't have a, we don't have product development or product management managers at Expensify. It's like everybody plays off the same sheet of music. The whole mm-hmm. team starts in the same, talks about the same, works from the same document mm-hmm. on on Monday. And he's like, we've gradually grown and we've hired very specifically types of people who will fit into this organization mm-hmm. and built this culture and this routine around it so that we're not building a big old siloed organization. We're not building the company that we didn't want to work at. Mm-hmm. We're gradually building this company that that works the way we want it to, that fits with the people that we want it to, and it tackles that problem in in culture and process in a very gradual and iterative way. Do you have any other tips on how to deal with that remote and collaborative growing team? It's hard. It really is. Um, you touched on a lot of really important things there. I don't know how big Expensify is and how long it'll work for them. Um, uh, you know, it it might because they're being so deliberate about it. There's a very good chance it'll work for them a lot longer than it would work for for a company that wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned hiring the kind of people who work that way. I do believe that there are people who work very well in those environments, and I do believe that there are people who do not work very well in those environments. And mm-hmm. I don't know what the traits of those folks are, and I don't know if you can train people who don't work well in those environments to work. I, I don't know that. That's not what I'm an expert at. So you need to figure that out for your own particular organization. Um, I like I. I think that can be really tricky because I think that there can be a lot of people who seem like they would work fine and then just don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you Hiring is a whole different thing and it's hard. Um, there are a couple of different problems with remote. There's remote, like I work actually with an entirely remote team right now um, where we're all remote. Um, you know, we're often in different countries um, and that's fine. We just need to make sure that we have good touch points and that we're, you know, doing, you know, that we are going over what's important to us every week and that we are just having these discussions and that we constantly have chat open and that we have these, you know, that, um, one of the things that I have found that's interesting is teams that are entirely remote, like everybody's working from their own personal space may do better than teams where you've got like a group in one place and maybe like one person working from home and like a group in another place, they tend to, they tend to set up sort of tribes and this, you know, the New York group might make a bunch of decisions and not tell the San Francisco group or, you know, mm-hmm. Susan working from home might not be included in a conversation that happened in the hallway. When you're hundred percent remote, nobody has a conversation in the hallway. We all have a conversation in, you know, Slack or Skype or whatever it is that we're using. Um, Google Hangouts. Um, so that makes a difference. But then there's just the sort of large company, you know, we're remote because we're just too big to all be in the same room together. And that has a different set of problems. And again, it's a set and there's no sort of like, just do this and you'll be fine. You need to figure out what's stopping you from being fine. 
Oh, that's a great point. I, having worked in all of those environments and currently, like all of those environments mm -hmm. that you described, and, and currently working in a very highly remote one, there's a lot of adjustment that needed to be to be to be made. There's a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, work that needed to be done to make it work. But what, what I find is interesting is that actually some of your key core points about this process about um, about your design process that actually you can you can take there right. Go, let's go back to the take yourself out of the take your ego out of the equation, mm -hmm. right? set some expectations and, and kind of predict the future a little bit. Have some empathy for your customer, right? Your customer is your team. Take a little ego out of it and be like, wow, this is really hard for me, but it's really hard for everybody else. Let me think about what's really important to them and let's, let's try and deliver that in sort of that, that team in, engagement. And actually, you know, if I apply that process and if I test and learn and if either I'm a good leader as a leader because I'm the leader of one group, but I'm a contributor in another and it's hard to shift brains from one to the other. But if I'm a good leader in one part, I'm asking and listening and doing the customer development process with those folks, it helps. And if I'm listening to what the leaders are saying that they need and give them what they need and then contribute some other things afterwards, I find that to be really helpful too. So I'm actually thinking like, you know what, you're right, it's super hard. It's complex at different levels, but your the approach that you're, you're you prescribe can really be helpful when you just think about what's the product. Yeah, <laughs> right? The product the, is a good is a good team, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. What's what's our goal, right? How are we going to get there, right? What are what are the needs of the humans that are using this product, right? What can we try to you know, and, and how can how can we validate and measure that? And oh, it didn't work. Let's. So it turns out that like that's. That's the process in the book, right? That's Gekabami, <laughs> as Great. I said, right? You know, the goal, the business goal, the empathy, the uh, creation of, you know, ideas and the, you know, the creation and ideation of things, um, the validation portion, the measurement, and the iteration, which is yeah. really the key. We just need to apply that to everything. And super. And, you know, and then if you just take the book and apply it to literally every part of your life, you know, everything will go well. <laughs> then wonderful things will happen. You'll put a picture Guaranteed. of Laura on your, on your wall as <laughs> Laura the Messiah. So right. we've got about three minutes left. I want to make sure you have a, uh, that time to talk a little bit about the book and a little about what you're going to give a teaser to people about what you're going to talk about at the conference so they are definitely want to start following the tribe of Laura when they get to the startup. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, it's no, it's great. Um, I'm doing a 90-minute workshop at the – uh, lean the Lean Startup Week, and I believe it's on November 1st, and I will be doing a deep dive into one of the exercises in the book. The thing that makes my book different from other books is there are a bunch of exercises that you can do and you should do with your team. So there are templates and there are questions to answer, and it's it's a little like a self-help book, <laughs> except it's, you know, help for your product team. Um, but, and the one that we're going to be working on is called the, the user map. The book will be out in October. So I will expect you all to have read it by the time that I do the workshop. Um, but uh, even if you haven't, um, the workshop is called, you know, how well do you know your user? And it, there are 14 key questions in five key areas um, that are really about getting to know all of the things that you need to know about your user in a way that is much easier, I think, not easier to use, but harder to screw up than say things like personas or, or jobs to be done. Love those, not saying anything bad about those, those are fantastic. This is a easy, good way for you to learn all the key things that you need to learn about your, your user and just make sure that you're not 
making wild assumptions about the people who you think are using your product. That's super exciting. Sounds like it's going to be a great workshop. And having read the book, I would encourage people to to take a peek at it um, because it's really, really cool. And those exercises are really helpful because people don't know how to – people have to work through it. You can read it, but then you've got to work through it. And the working through it in the exercises with your teams will really help you will help you contextualize it. So that's just super. Um, so we're out of time. Thanks so much for a wonderful conversation. It's always great to, to chat with you. It's great um, talking to you. Yeah, um, I hope people enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot, of, lot out of it. And I'm going to turn it over um, so so that our production team can give us the outro and give people the means to connect with us with follow-on questions and such. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks to everyone for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Some quick announcements. We're looking for ambassadors to join the Lean Startup team for upcoming Lean Startup Week in San Francisco on October 31st to November 6th. Please see the link in the description box for more information. And for our Midwest folks, our Detroit Summit is coming up next Tuesday, September 20th. It's not too late to join us, and so visit leanstartup.co for more information.